Hi, and welcome to Ask the Expert, a daily series from half eight till 9 a.m. to help small businesses. Ask any questions in the comments or go to Twitter, hashtag QBATE, and drop your questions there. If you need any more advice, please join the official Intuit QuickBooks SMB community group on Facebook. Accountants and business experts are on hand 24-7. QuickBooks also has a dedicated COVID-19 information site. Just go to their website, scroll down a little bit, and click on the big Learn More button under the header, Support for You and Your Business During COVID-19. So guys, I'm Carl Reader, and thank you so much for joining me on this Ask Me Anything session. I appreciate that it is a massive chunk out of your diary when you are probably working out how to rebuild your business for the post-coronavirus world. So let me share with you a little bit about why Intuit felt I would be well-placed to come along and answer your questions. And then I can't wait to get into some of your questions and help you with your pressing business challenges. I know that half an hour is a long time for you to take out of your diary. So I want to make sure that you get value from every single minute from this session. So for me, I just want to share with you a little bit about my journey and how I came about to be sat here talking to you today. I wasn't a typical business owner. Do you know, in fact, I don't think many people are. I was not the best at school. And at the age of 15, I decided to leave school and start a YTS in hairdressing. Now, I'm very clear that that dates me in the eyes of most of you because many of you won't know what a YTS is. It was a youth training scheme. It was the original apprenticeship scheme that the government had back in the 90s. And you know what? I just wasn't cut out for it, uh, if you pardon my pun. So within six weeks, I was left having to go back to do my GCSEs, but more importantly, find a career or a path that would both satisfy me and um, you know, set me on my route for the future. So I got a job in a supermarket, as everyone does. Anyway, long story short, my um, first child was due very shortly after, and I had to get a real job. And this was at the age of 16. Bear in mind, my GCSEs were pretty dreadful. And I quite literally fell into the world of accountancy. So I opened up the job paper on a Thursday, went for two interviews at accountancy firms, one at the army, fell into accountancy. So if we fast forward from there, you can see that I was perhaps an accidental professional because I certainly didn't intend to be an accountant and I'm um, certainly not an accountant now. Uh, but that was how I fell into business. And what I found was that I was very much a square peg in a round hole. So I would you know, add up numbers, but I found it really boring, to be honest. I didn't enjoy the fact that I was working within an office. And the opportunity came up quite early on to go out and meet business owners. And do you know what I did? I just asked for very simple questions. I asked them why. Why did you do this? Why did you do that? And I must have been seen at that point as the annoying 20-year-old who was going out and didn't really know what he was doing because every second word was why, why, why. But before long, I'd spoken to hundreds of business owners and I realized that actually the combined experience of dealing with lots of business owners was far more beneficial than my accounting knowledge. Um, it was far more beneficial that I understood why, for example, an off-license might buy their 
their stock from the cash and carry rather than a supermarket, whilst on the face of it, the supermarket is cheaper. I started to understand why business owners made the decisions that they did. I started to understand a little bit more about the processes of marketing, the processes of sales, of operations, and it helped broaden my commercial knowledge. So if we fast forward, I ended up uh, being involved in the buyout of the practice that I was at. Um, so bought that out about the age of 27. And by that point, I, I was long past doing any kind of finances. So quick health warning, guys. I'm not going to answer any accounting questions. Let, let's just make that clear now. If you want to know where something goes in your QuickBooks, speak to your accountant. But I will help you on the consolidated knowledge from thousands and thousands of businesses. I was very fortunate in 2015, I believe, I was offered the chance to write my first book, The Startup Coach. So The Startup Coach was um, based on my experience by then of dealing with thousands of businesses. I um, built it as quite a workbook to help encourage people to really start doing their own thing. 2016, I wrote The Franchising Handbook. I became a board director of the British Franchise Association. I became an ambassador of Ipsy, the trade body of the self-employed. And um, since then, it's my journey has just gone in an amazing way. So where am I at now? I currently share business news and views and advice and guidance completely free of charge to my social media audience of over 150,000 people. So why do I do this? Very simple. I've been really fortunate that business has kind of looked after me along the way. I've been really fortunate that I've been able to build my businesses and I now have both time and the ability to share and give back to everybody else. So that's why I do it. And if I come down to one of the root reasons of it, I'm going to take an example of my eldest son, Jordan. So Jordan is, he's just turned 21, actually. Unfortunately, I missed his 21st down to lockdown. And do you know what? He was forced into doing A-levels by his school. Now, like me, he's not academic. He was forced into doing A-levels. But actually, it wasn't for him. He came out with a couple of each. You know, it really wasn't great. You would not believe it. He was then being directed towards going to university. Everything I do is like a letter to my children, trying to help them understand that business ownership can be one of the most rewarding things that they do, and that business isn't complicated. It's really hard, don't get me wrong. It's really tough. You need to have mental strength. You need to have your health behind you. You need to have your family behind you. You need a bit of luck. Yeah, there's a lot of things that come into it. However, it's not complicated. And my job is to simplify things to make sure that business owners know what the important things are to do, what isn't important, what they need to pay for, what they don't need to pay for, and most importantly, to keep them on track. Now, I've got a really simple model that I use, and I'm sharing it in full detail in my new book, Boss It. So Boss It is due for release 3rd of October in the UK, global release 27th of October. You'll find it on Amazon, Waterstones, and all of the major um, booksellers, and you should find it in store as well if you're happy to wait till October. But it's available now for pre-order. And I have a fundamental concept of dream, plan, do, review. And that is it. It's really simple. It sounds amazingly simple when I share it, but dream, plan, do, review. is all you need to do to make sure that you're on track for a successful business. 
First of all, you need to make sure that your dream is big enough for you, that it motivates you to get out of bed, but it's not too big that it scares you. Secondly, you need to plan. Now, planning is one of the areas where, again, it can go one of each way. You can either spend all of your time becoming a spreadsheet millionaire and not actually do anything about it. Or you could just dive into the third step, which is do. You could take action with no plan at all. Both of them are fairly disastrous. So you need your dream. You need to plan effectively and efficiently. You then need to do and you need to take action. And then you need to review. You need to go back and check what's happened. You've got those four. Now, it might seem like that's the kind of stuff that you do in the early days of business and you put away in a drawer and just hope never to go back to it. Let me share a secret with you. It's something that you should be doing every week, every month, every year, and certainly now in this post-coronavirus world. You know, we have seen some remarkable stories within my Facebook community and outside of business owners who have really overcome the odds. They've taken their martial arts schools and transformed it to online tuition. They've taken their first aid training and virtualized it. They've taken their gyms outdoors. You know, they've taken businesses that should be decimated by this current situation, and they are thriving. They're the people that inspire me, and I hope that I can share some of that inspiration with you guys as well. So I'm conscious we've got some questions coming in now. So I will try my very best to take them in order. If you have any follow-ups from the questions, please drop a secondary question I'm more than happy to try and help you here and make sure that you get the most from this. So the first question that I've got is from Paris on Facebook Messenger. So Paris, thank you so much for submitting. Hi, Carl. With you being a serial investor, entrepreneur, speaker, do you have suggestions on how to manage time effectively? I would really like to open my second business, but the thought of time management is putting me off. The idea of not prioritizing well can lead to missed opportunities. Okay, so that's a multifaceted question, and I'll try to answer it as best as possible. Time management is absolutely key for juggling various balls, because as a business owner, and I prefer to refer to myself as business owner rather than entrepreneur or anything like that, um, it's just kind of what I do. Um, but as a business owner, you have a variety of demands, whether you've got one business, two businesses, three businesses, or 200 businesses. and it takes a toll on your personal life. It takes a toll on your health, on your mental health, on everything else. So time management is absolutely critical to make sure that you can sort the wheat from the chaff and you can focus on what I call thousand pound moments. So those are the moments, the decisions, the statements, the you know, even the social media posts that make a thousand pounds difference rather than make a 10 pound contribution. So for me, I would suggest that what you do is be absolutely brutal with your time. You need to make sure that you value every single moment of your day in the same way that you might value every pound in your bank or you might value every family member or friend or social media contact. You need to make sure that you place that value on it. Now, I use a couple of principles to try and help me. The first one is from Stephen R. Covey, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, which is an amazing book if you've not read it. It um, has seven habits of productivity and well-being, and it really was quite a steering force in my early days of personal development and trying to get to understand myself. 
Now, within the seven habits, Covey recommends splitting your time as a matrix between important, not important, urgent, and not urgent. Now, most of us get consumed by things that are urgent, but not necessarily important. So if a phone is ringing and you go to pick it up, if somebody's calling you, it's urgent for them, but it's not necessarily urgent for you. So you need to make sure that you really do um, prioritize your own urgency. And most importantly, that you focus on the stuff that is not, that's not urgent, but important. So this is the stuff like systemizing your business. This is the stuff that's working on your business, not doing the stuff that's needed to hit deadline. Now, by doing that, you amazingly reduce a number of the urgent things. The second thing is another book suggestion, The Four-Hour Workweek from Tim Ferriss. Now, that one was a real eye-opener for me for allowing me to really open my mind to a different way of working. Um, He doesn't work four hours. He works seven hours, but he works extremely productively. It gave me some practical tools in terms of email management, in terms of delegation, in terms of using a PA, and it was remarkable. So they would be the two resources that I would send you to from, from a time management perspective. But please also don't overburden yourself. I make sure that I only focus on a new project when my existing businesses can work without me. If I'm involved within the process, then it's not at the stage where I can look at another project. So I hope, Paris, that that's answered your question. I'm going to move on to Philip. So Philip, thank you so much for sharing your question by Twitter DM. What is my advice for feeling comfortable speaking in front of people on stage and becoming a good speaker? So Philip, you probably didn't hear my first ever talk. So I'm going to share it with you. It went really well in my own mind. It was great. You know, I turned up, there was 15 people in the room. I had some slides and I talked for two hours. I was only booked for 20 minutes. And that was pretty dreadful. You know, I wanted the ground to open up when I realized what a faux pas that was. I wasn't very slick. I rushed through my slides at certain points. I dwelled on my slides. I went off on a tangent. I started having conversations with individuals. So I became quite worried about it. Second time, I got up on stage and I died on my feet. My throat was dry. I was nervous. It felt like I was sweating. And it was dreadful. Do you know how I got through it and how I became comfortable? I just kept doing it. I know that sounds flippant, but practice truly does make perfect. Everybody has their own styles when it comes to speaking and presenting. But what you need to remember is if you're speaking to one person, two people, 10 people, 20 people, 2,000 people, 10,000 people, There is actually no difference in what you're bringing to the table. There is no difference in terms of the words that come out of your mouth, in terms of the body language, in terms of the way that you present. The only difference is between your ears and its mindset and its fear. So I guess my biggest piece of advice is to practice, 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 and to slowly grow your ability to speak in front of people. Take advantage of things like networking groups, take advantage of perhaps Toastmasters and so on, and enjoy the craft. 90% of speaking is really easy. It's about knowing your subject inside out, because once you've got the confidence to know that you can speak about something and you know more than 99% of the audience, then it just flows and you don't even need to practice because you're comfortable that you can share it. However, There is then a final 10% stagecraft, and that's the stuff where training can really help to understand when pauses can be effective, to understand where to position yourself on a stage. 
that kind of stuff is vital for great performance. Um, but if you can get to the 90%, which you can get to through practice, you will be better than 99% of speakers. Now, Natalie, Facebook Messenger, thank you, Natalie. I'm setting up my own company and I have a background in finance, so on that front, I'm sorted. Thank you, Natalie. Didn't want to ask any difficult finance questions, but I don't know anything about marketing. I'm super keen to learn more about that world. Where do you think I should start? And what do you think is most important for a new small company run by one person? So marketing can be an absolute money drain for businesses if you're not prepared. And I'm sure you know with a finance background that there's trackable marketing and non-trackable marketing. And things like, um, let's say, designing a website or um, designing a logo is not particularly trackable at all. And you can't correlate a pound that you spend versus a pound return. On the flip side, there are trackable spends like um, pay-per-click on Google where you can directly correlate. So you need to have a nice balance of the two because if you try to have a finance head and go 100% trackable, you won't have the credibility platform on the flip side if you um, just focus on a website and you make it really pretty and you put all your money there, then no one will find it. So you need to be very careful of the two areas of marketing that you go for, but you keep a balance. You need to open up your income streams and your um, marketing streams, but you've got the right number of channels. Uh, you know, certainly my core business, DNT, we've got about 70 different channels that we use. Everything online, offline, social media, websites, pay-per-clicks, and so on. We have loads of different ways of distributing and de-risking our marketing as much as possible. But I would also suggest... If you are a new small company being run by one person, that you strongly consider building your own personal brand. Because if you were to, um, let's say, give your company a name, let's say your company is Super Widgets Limited, and you're selling widgets and they're super, people aren't buying from Super Widgets Limited, they're buying from Natalie. And the same is actually true with bigger companies, but we're only as a society just becoming to realise that. And I believe in the post-COVID world that this is going to become more and more relevant because business is no longer B2B or B2C. It's H2H, -to -H, human to human. And even if it's one big corporate and another big corporate dealing with each other, it's not the two companies dealing with each other, it's the individuals within that company. So the one strength that you've got, Natalie, is that you've got no brand guidelines, you've got no um, rules and regulations that you need to adhere to as yourself. So just be yourself, share yourself, the ups, the downs, the positives, the negatives, what you're all about, your hobbies, along with your business as well. Now, there's a principle for personal branding I like to adhere to, which came from a guy called Gary Vaynerchuk. If you haven't followed him, you must do. He's, um, he's a master at personal branding. And he has the concept of jab, 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 right hook. So if you imagine a boxer, yeah, they are going to a boxing ring. They don't go straight in for the right hook. What they tend to do is jab, jab, jab. They put a few jabs in before going for the right hook. And the jabs are the community building. They are the society building. They are giving back to your community and earning permission in the boxing match to then land the right hook. Now, by doing that, what you will do is you will build a rapport with your audience. Now, your audience might only be 10 people to begin with. But you'll build a rapport, you will build trust, and you will find that people will then start recommending you. They will go to their networking events and somebody will say, hey, do you know somebody who does X, Y, Z? 
And let's say this person wants for super widgets. Yeah, Natalie. And it wouldn't be super widgets limited that they prefer. It will be Natalie. So that would be my strongest, strongest suggestion is to balance up the um, trackable and non-trackable marketing. Focus on a personal brand because a lot of that will be time that you can spend rather than money you can invest. And one last bonus thing, do not invest in any get-rich-quick schemes. You will see Facebook ads for um, click funnels and become a £100,000 business and do X, Y, Z. Don't do it. There is too many people out there selling a course that, funnily enough, will start at $97, $297, $1,497, and then they will try and sell you the ten dollars or $20,000 course at the end of it. I actually had the horrific experience this weekend of watching this happen in person. Now, I was invited as a guest, so I was very curious, and I just watched it. It was about how to build and sell online courses, and the attendees had paid $2,000 US to be on this course, and the entire event was a long sales pitch to get them to spend $12,000. What's worse? Because of the tricks and tips that they used and the NLP, people were actually weighing up whether to put it on a credit card because their partners had lost their jobs and they needed income. Do not fall for that. There are much easier ways of doing this. Again, it's hard work, but it's not complicated and you don't need to spend thousands for someone to translate it for you. Next question, Jamie from Facebook Messenger. Jamie, thank you so much for joining us. How did I get published and how does it come about? Really, really um, severe, actually. And I'm actually quite embarrassed to share this story, but I'm going to share it anyway. My very first publishing deal came about through Facebook. And it was through me telling a bit of a porky. Um, I had somebody post on Facebook. Um, in fact, a friend of mine, Rob Brown, posted on Facebook saying, does anybody know anyone who can write a book on startups or has written a book on startups? And I just waved and said, hey, yeah, have a look at me. I hadn't even started. I had no idea. I had a bucket list idea of writing a book, but I hadn't started. Now, what I didn't realize was that his contact who put me in touch with Hodder and Stoughton was actually leading me into a publishing contract with the world's second biggest publisher. So I kind of went about it backwards. Based on the book sales from book one, I got the deal for book two, which was my dream book. And that was, at the time, the limit of my goals was just to write a guide for franchising. Um, but then my third book, Reality Hit, self-publishing was a thing, and it was really quite difficult to get a traditional publishing deal. So how does it come about? It's very different for nonfiction and fiction, but I'll share with you how it works for nonfiction. The publishers rarely deal with agents. You might hear some nonsense that they do, but they rarely do, because advances, certainly in the business book world and the nonfiction world, are extremely low. Um, look, even Jacob Rees-Mogg, at the time of perhaps him being one of the most prominent faces, love him or hate him, one of the most prominent faces on TV, he only got £10,000 as an advance. So when you hear people saying about £100,000 advances, forget it. it. It doesn't work like that. What, what happens is the agents won't want to deal with you because the return is so low compared to some books like cookbooks and so on. For nonfiction, you have to um, send in a proposal. Now, they are typically published on spec rather than 
published um, on transcripts, so uh, on manuscripts, sorry. So a fiction book, you send the whole manuscript. With a non-fiction, you send a proposal with an extract from a chapter to show that you know your stuff. But more importantly, you need to share a chapter plan, your marketing platform, and all of that stuff. The most important thing that publishers are looking for is how you can promote the book, how you're going to get the word out there. Um, the content is obviously important, but for them, they're looking for marketing platform and return on their publishing investment. If you can't get into, into a traditional publisher, there is now hybrid publishing. So there's a great company called Rethink that do this, where you can pay them, let's say, five, six thousand pounds, and they will manage the process for you as if they are a traditional publisher. Um, the world is much more difficult now. I think my perhaps biggest advice if you're looking to get published is to persevere. With the volume of online information nowadays, people don't necessarily buy books so much, and it's a whole lot easier to get out there, so there's a lot more noise as well. But if you've got a very clear message that you want to get out to the world, make sure that you weigh up whether you want to be published or self-published, um, come up with a very strong title, very strong chapter plan, and the rest can fall into place. Angelica, thank you so much for your Twitter DM. Being in lockdown, it's made me think about starting my own business in something I'm passionate about, which is fitness. I'm currently on furlough. I'd love to set up a fitness apparel brand, but I don't know where to start. Can you have any advice for that? Good luck. Lots of people are doing it, Angelica. But look, um, there is a huge growing market in fitness. And I think that we're going to see an interesting trend in fitness where after COVID-19, I think that the traditional gym is, um, you know, its days are numbered because of social distancing, because of the sheer cost of running a gym and also price pressures. So what we're going to find instead, Angelica, is that people will continue the Joe Wicks effect and they will look to actually train in their front room. You know, their gym will now be their lounge. And rather than spending their money on a gym membership, they will spend their money on fitness wear, which has also kind of crossed into the fashion world nowadays. They will spend their money on home equipment and so on. So I think there is an opportunity here. But it's extremely hard to break through with messaging. You know, Gymshark did amazingly well at breaking through. There have been a few others that have broken through as well. Um, but many stay as niche players. Now, what I would suggest is, if you can, I would be strongly looking at the influencer model right now, looking at um, getting influencers to wear your kit and share it on social media and so on. But that's what everyone's doing. But I would narrow it down a little bit because everyone's doing it. So I would focus not just on your product of what you're doing, but I would then take it a step down and focus on like, who is my precise customer? So for many, they go with their customers being anybody and everybody, but they get bodybuilders or ultra fit PTs to wear their stuff. If your ideal customer is, let's say, um, take me, a balding old bloke who's got a bit of a belly on him, um, have a think about how you could work with the influencers in your space to create a campaign that resonates with your target audience. Um, so it might be, let, let's say your audience is 50-year-old ladies who are looking to go to the gym. What I would suggest for them is that you work, you create a plan that can go viral. They can share it with their friends. They can then look at um, wearing, you know, wearing your kit in that process. And I think that that will really help uh, build some traction and differentiate you from everybody else. Now, I'm conscious that we are coming up to the end of time here. 
I've got some um, further questions here. So what I'm going to do, with your permission, is I'm going to share these questions anonymously, the ones that have been left over within my Facebook group, um, which is www.carlreader.com forward slash QB. There's a link to it there. So that's carlreader.com forward slash QB. And I'll share a supplementary video answering the remaining questions. So Nick, Caroline, second Caroline, I haven't forgotten you at all. And I will get to your questions, but I will need to run a second video on it if that's okay. Um, that's right, and Sean as well. So any questions, please um, get in touch with the QB support team on Facebook or reach out to me. As I mentioned, you can contact me. Um, best way is through www.carlreader.com forward slash QB. It will get you access to my free of charge um, post-COVID-19 recovery video series. It will get you my bullet point business series and also I'll share with you details of a Facebook community. Um, so it'll be great to see you there. You can also follow me on socials at Carl Reader. Now, coming up tomorrow on Ask the Expert is Laura Hitchcock, who runs Little Stuff, the award-winning lifestyle website for parents of teenagers. I've got teenagers myself. I need support, so I'm going to be speaking to her. I'm going to be joining it. A reminder, if you need any more advice, join the official Intuit QuickBooks SMB community group on Facebook. Accountants and business experts are on hand 24-7. Thank you and stay safe.